Hello, my name's Mark Muller-Stewart, and I'm here to introduce this week's podcast from Beyond Borders Scotland, where ideas enlighten. This week we return to the festival and join the former First Minister of Scotland, Jack McConnell, as he talks to veteran political columnist, journalist and podcaster presenter Steve Richards about contemporary British politics and his new book, Turning Points, which looks at ten watershed moments in modern British history. Together they debate whether Britain is on the brink of another political turning point and consider the prospects of a Labour victory under Keir Starmer at the next general election and its potential impact on Britain, Scotland, the SNP and the European Union and beyond. We hope you enjoy. Very delighted to, to welcome Steve Richards after 14 shows at the Edinburgh Festival, uh, last of which was this morning. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so I think we should be very grateful to him that he's awake, never mind that, uh, never mind that he is, uh, he's with us here tonight. Um, and I, I, as part of the preparation for, today, for this evening, which we're going to talk about this uh, new book, which is coming out in September, Turning Points, that Steve has written. But uh, as part of the preparation, I listened to uh, an interview that was on YouTube. I don't know if it was originally done on YouTube, but it just appeared there, um, that Steve had done before the Edinburgh Festival shows, in which uh, you, as I understand it, talk through current affairs and issues that are of concern to you for 14, 14 shows. Each show develops on the previous one. And you said in that interview that at the end, in the 14th show, which took place this morning, you come to some conclusions. You maybe find the answers, in fact, I think you might even have yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, I did. And I, I thought I would start, well, what, what were the answers you found this morning? I, well, I'll tell you how I ended it today, because I said to the people coming today, you're really lucky to be at this show because it's the last one and this is the one where we pull it all together and make sense of everything and the rest of your year will be fantastic <laughs> and my last sentence is was something along the lines of it's quite clear we're wholly unsure about everything so you all have to come again next year and that was and um because uh, that you know everything is so fluid, but the, it's, there's one interesting change. You, you do learn a lot doing these shows, I find. And the one really interesting change um, uh, from a year ago is uh, certainly with the audiences in Edinburgh, uh, a much closer assumption that Labour are going to win the UK general election. And I speak about this from painful experience because a year ago. Um, at the Edinburgh Festival. I went there one day to do a whole hour on Keir Starmer and the Labour Party. And I asked the audience, some of you might remember this because I've done a version of it here, to make a prediction. And a year ago, I asked them to set up the Keir Starmer special. Um, how many of them predicted he would be Prime Minister at, after the British general election? And a majority a year ago predicted he wouldn't be. And I thought, well, this is ridiculous. I've just prepared an hour on a figure this audience thinks is completely irrelevant and marginal. And so I thought, what am I going to do? So I did what politicians do, which is to give the impression of empowering the audience while manipulating them. And I said, OK, well, obviously, you don't think Starmer's going to be prime minister. I've prepared an hour on him. Um, so I'll give you a choice. We can either have an hour on Keir Starmer or an hour on economic policy-making in the 1970s. And by a huge majority, they voted for economic policy-making <laughs> in the 1970s. Um, had to completely switch to Callaghan, Wilson, and, you know, all of that heath. Um, this year, I asked that same question, having prepared something about Starmer and Labour, and only two predicted... It was a big haul, like as big as this, only two predicted he wouldn't be Prime Minister. The, the rest of them all put their hands up and said he would be. So I think that's quite an interesting change. There are other things going on, you know, questions. There are doubts about him and Labour and government, which kind of is implicit in this book on turning points. Mm -hmm. You know, if they're right, there's going to be a change of government. But is that a turning point in the course of Britain's history? And that is, I think, less clear. Maybe we'll come back to that 
Uh, I think that would be an interesting point after discussing the other turning points uh, in the book. You've chosen 10 turning points uh, and it, for the 10 different chapters in this book, ranging from 1945 through to uh, the past 12 months, which feels like about a dozen turning points in, in one year. Uh, but uh, you've, just, you've, you've included that as the final one. I wondered what you'd left out. You know, whether originally a long list of 11 or 12, any that didn't make it? No, because, to be honest, the 10 that have made it, uh, which just very quickly are 1945, the Suez Crisis, uh, Roy Jenkins' social reforms in the late 1960s, the quadrupling of oil in 1973, the 79 political revolution, uh, the 45 Labour government, obviously the first one, um, the 97 Labour government, but only just in terms of a turning point, um, Iraq, the global financial crash, uh, the pandemic, <coughs> and Liz Truss makes a grand entry at the end. <laughs> because in a way, that was the most crude turning point in modern times, where you had a budget one week announcing tax cuts and a revolution in economic policy based on the backing of one economist, Patrick, what's his name? Um, I've forgotten his... You know, Minford, Patrick well, Minford. We're all trying to forget, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've managed it. I have to ask <laughs> the audience every time. And then within weeks, the opposite, the budget, yeah. we're not going to do that, we're not going to do that. It was an extraordinary moment. And yet, like so many of the U-turns uh, or turning points uh, in this book, um, they were moments of great drama which could have been an epic turning point. But as you know, the overall kind of argument I make is that there's a quote from the historian A.J.P. Taylor, you know, legendary, some, you're too young to remember him, but he was around in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And he wrote about German history. Uh, Germany reached a turning point and failed to turn. And I think one of the things that comes out of this book is that so often Britain is on the edge of an epic turning point and fails to turn. So rather than putting more in, I think there are arguments for excluding some because if you look at just take the Suez crisis for a second, there it was in 1956, an extraordinary drama. And I hadn't realised the degree to which Eden, the Prime Minister in the summer of 56, his decline was dramatic. I mean, to be honest, in some ways it makes Liz Truss look calm and stable because yep. although she went more quickly, uh, Eden had won an election, he had been a Foreign Secretary, then Suez happened. And it was a disaster because America wouldn't back it and Britain suddenly discovered it couldn't act on its own or with one other power, and it raised loads of questions. Where is Britain? Should it be in Europe? Should it form a close relationship with the US? Um, if not, which and what? And of course, Macmillan tried to get us into Europe. And it looked as if a turning point had been reached. But look at the discussions we're having now. Mm -hmm. You know, are we in Europe, out of Europe, with the America? If not with America, why not? And we're having the same discussions after Brexit, which of course is one of the chapters in the book. It's, uh, Brexit is an epic turning point. We're having exactly the same discussions we were having after Suez. And so Britain reached a turning point and failed to turn. And to be honest, I think there are only two enduring turning points in this book. And it's quite interesting. One of them is the, are the social reforms of the late 1960s. There's something about British politics that makes social reforms much easier than economic and industrial reforms. Yeah. I'd be interested to know why you think that is. But So Jenkins introduced all these reforms, huge volume of noise about it. Um, uh, and David Steele, who's here, was absolutely central to, of course, the... Abortion Act. And, and David writes in his memoir very modestly that he was incredibly lucky that he had a home secretary who was an ally and other factors came into play that made him get that Abortion Act through. 
Um, but there was a huge amount of noise and late night sittings and you needed a very long period of time and were lucky that an election took place so the parliament was long. But once they were passed, they endured. They were turning points that endured and indeed, you know, were built on by the Labour government post-97 and even uh, Cameron used in a way gay marriage as the great claim that he was a moderniser. So the social reforms are introduced to a lot of noise and are never, from what I can tell, reversed. Um, so that's endured as a really important turning point in British modern history. And I think largely the revolution of 1979, the Thatcher Revolution, which was a counter really to the 45 yeah, Revolution, largely endures which is why the question of whether we are reaching the end of that period and having another turning point is so interesting. Well, we're not going to know that for another... Maybe this time next year, maybe the year yeah. after. Um, well, we certainly... We might know about a change of government. But not but necessarily a turning Is point. it going to be a turning point in the course of British history? Mm. That's interesting. I thought it was also interesting that in the, the, fir the first five chapters of the book, as you say, 45... Suez, the 67 Act, the oil crisis, and 1979 election take place over about 50 years. Yeah. Um, and then the next five chapters in the book take place over about 25 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, is the pace of history changing? Yeah, I think it is. And a lot of people will say it's to do with social media. I, I don't think it's to do with that. I think we were talking earlier about uh, some of the political experiences and political vignettes you've witnessed. I think the 2008 global crash mm -hmm. was a moment of uh, great destabilizing uh, uh, consequences, um, which means that quite a few of the um, turning points that follow, I think, begin with that crash and the breakdown of trust. And I think you can link Brexit to absolutely. 2008. You, you agree well, with that? Well, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and once you've got Brexit in place, you can see the seeds being sown for Truss. Um, although she was a Remainer, but she became an ardent uh, fan of Brexit and the opportunities of Brexit. So um, I think both Iraq and the financial crash affected Truss in a way that broke had me. a massive impact in the following decade. Uh, and so do and I. Still, still so do I. See, Iraq is in the, in the book, um, and it's, it's, it's complicated, the politics of Iraq, but for sure there was a breakdown of trust uh, arising from it. And when you have that breakdown of trust, and then you have an event like Brexit, which is posed as the people versus the elites, mm -hmm. there's only going to be one outcome mm -hmm. in that context of a breakdown of trust. So the sort of turning points feed in on themselves, but don't resolve in most cases, except the social reforms and so far the Thatcher settlement. But what's really interesting now, I think, and in a way I think explains some of the kind of ideological dilemmas Sunak faces, is that more recent turning points have led to a return to the state becoming fashionable. You know, Johnson made the case for Brexit in those terms. You know, um, uh, kick out uh, all the uh, free movement and right. start earning money again. You know, he sort of almost put a Tony Benn case for import controls on Labour. Yep. He became a Bennite. And the pandemic was so interesting, where you had a fiscal conservative like Sunak spending all this money to keep the economy going. And you then had people like Jeremy Hunt and even Matt Hancock. You remember him, the guy who's uh, now in, in the jungle somewhere or somewhere. Um, on a beach, basically on a beach, um, talking about the fragmentation of public services like the NHS and the need to bring it back together, challenging the kind of reforms that the early part of the, that coalition had brought in. Um, it's so, interesting that, the, that you, I mean, you, those two points that you choose, in particular the, the, the Thatcher Revolution, it happened, you know, at its peak, let's say, the mid-80s, 
40 years after 1945. Yeah. And we're now about 40 years after that. Yeah. So that is there now, now maybe the potential for a big turning point, but are the current leaders of our political parties up to it? Well, I think those are brilliant questions. And you're right. It took a long time for that Thatcher counter-revolution to happen. In other words, that Attlee government did, to some extent, impose its kind of will and set of assumptions for quite a long time. Although one of the uh, problems uh, with that government is it didn't last that long compared mm. with Thatcher's governments. It was gone by 1951, yep. of course. So Thatcher had a much longer period of time for her counter-revolution. But I think, yeah, I think the underlying forces um, point to the end of the Thatcher triumph. It's very interesting now with the modern Tory party how they try so hard to continue to worship at the altar, but can't quite do it. Um, and so you had Theresa May. Do you remember her? She was Prime Minister for about 10 minutes uh, a few years ago. If it wasn't for Brexit, believe it or not, her leadership might have been quite interesting because under the guidance of her advisor, Nick Timothy, who's going to be an MP after the next election, she was starting to talk about the good the state can do. Thatcher would never have uttered mm -hmm. those words. Norwood Cameron, as you say. Cameron. Yep. Norwood yep. Cameron. Cameron was basically a Thatcherite who tried to be something he was not, but it kept on coming back to kind of become him. Um, and then you had Johnson, who was all over the place. You know, call me a Roosevelt, you know, big spender. And, and actually that Tory 2019 manifesto was stuffed full of spending commitments. And I think there is now much more questioning about, well, we need more from the state to intervene in all kinds of different ways. Now, as you, you know, the late 70s, it was the opposite. When yep. Thatcher seized that potent political term freedom, uh, which, uh, you know, it could be a Labour term, but she seized it and said, we will get the state of people's... That's my impression of Margaret Thatcher. We will get the state of people's backs and make them free again. And she linked freedom to a smaller state. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that is changing underneath the surface. Now, whether... And Sunak is struggling because he doesn't, he doesn't believe in... The, you know, doesn't believe in intervening in railways and the strikes and all the rest of it. Um... But the demands on the state are kind of growing. And I've even noticed people like William Hague write, we're in the era of uh, a more statist approach to solutions. I thought, oh, that's interesting, coming from his... I even read Andrew Neil say it the other day. <laughs> yeah. I, had to, I had to have a lie down in a darkened room. <laughs> um, uh, I thought that was very revealing. So these darker, for uh, deeper forces are in play again. Now, the key question is whether the leaders seize it whether Keir Starmer seizes it or not, whether in Scotland Anas Sawa does. Um, and that we don't know the answer to mm -hmm. yet. Um, what do you think? I think to win the election, um, Keir Starmer will need to, s to set out more of what he's going to do, not just be the safe alternative to the yeah. chaos. Yeah. And I think that's... Uh, that, that, to me, that's his biggest challenge in the next 12 months. Yeah. He needs to be more than... I think people forget with Blair that Blair was more than presentation. Mm. He's so praised for his communication skills that the 79... Um, Labour, 97. La, 97. So the 97 Labour project was, was about much more than just good communication. It, was, it had a lot of content to it in the first term. Yeah, maybe less so yeah. after that, but in the first term. And I, I think Stammer has to get himself in that place, not necessarily with the same policies, but with a, no. with a, with a rich body of content that people can believe. This is the things. challenging bit of leadership, isn't Absolutely. it? You can, uh, in opposition, uh, link values to policies and win an election. Mm -hmm. And Labour leaders aren't very good at it on the whole, <laughs> um, in the UK general election context. Yep. yep. Um, and, but I absolutely feel, as you said, I hadn't noticed the symmetry of timing, that, that sense that you identify freedom by getting the state off your backs and allowing you to decide what to do. I mean, it was very clever framing, it was wasn't it? Clever. Because you know a BBC Vox Pop 
when they go to Basildon or some marginal seat and they have to balance a Vox Pop, so it's completely false, you know. Well, they won't find anyone in Basildon against freedom, you know. Uh, oh, I'm against freedom, mate. I want to be locked up and incarcerated <laughs> and not moved for Told the next 50 do. years. Yep. You know, they all, everyone's in favour of freedom, but what form does it take? And I think with the sense of public services not working, um, of Biden being quite, you know, in his own sort of doddery way, Biden has been a real interventionist. interventionist yep with the challenges of climate change. Um, this is a different era. I mean, I don't think, I argue in 79, it wasn't inevitable. Thatcherism wasn't inevitable. There were other courses that could have been taken um, and were in other countries. It was a sort of myth that went around that, you know, she used to say, there is no alternative. Well, there were lots. Um, well, you had Mitterrand in France. And, and exactly Mitterrand the same time. in France, exactly. Same longevity as well. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and in other places. And there were even options within Britain. But, the, the, uh, you know, the British Labour Party decided to have a civil war. Mm -hmm. um, it's a tradition. Uh, uh, following a regular pattern after election defeats. Uh, then we had the SDP, Liberal Alliance. And, but but there, were, there were policies around that were, were not necessarily the Thatcherite route. But mm -hmm. once taken, she embarked on it like an express train. And it, a part of her skill was to make it seem inevitable when it mm -hmm. wasn't. And as I say, her dominance of the Tory party has been such that it's still around, but I think it is fading. But mm -hmm. what form the counter-revolution to her counter-revolution will take will be another, I think, interesting uh, turning point. But the UK's capacity not to learn the lessons from seismic change is also very... Depressing, really. Um, I to, yeah, I was going to come on to that about the oil crisis because you, you, you talk about that Thatcher revolution as being very definitive and yeah. has had that 40 year impact, but you also say that the oil crisis, which preceded the, 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 the Thatcher revolution, is something that the UK has basically repeated again and again and okay. never really yeah. learned the lessons yeah. from. Yeah, there should have been a turning point after 1973. Uh, with the quadrupling of oil prices. And as ever, Britain more vulnerable than just about any other country. It was aimed at America, the quadrupling of oil. They cope with it. Britain, chaos. And at the time, just after Suez, there was talk about we've got to get into Europe. We can't be on our own any longer. Um, and we've got to work out precisely what the relationship is with America. And here we are in 2023, out of Europe, not knowing where we are. Lessons not learned. And in 73, uh, there was a big debate. What the hell? Why are we so dependent on this oil? The, the miners are on strike. The miners are demanding 30% pay rise. We've got to, from now on, uh, work out how you conserve energy mm -hmm. when it's cheaper and more available. And with Ukraine, no co energy conserved here. Um, even though we're less dependent on Russian imports than Germany, who's more buggered us because we haven't conserved yep. and and that's another theme i think of these turning points with that 45 labor government they were very diverse and not at all in agreement about what precisely was the best way forward you know what form public ownership should take but they were all agreed on one thing uh planning was a virtue mm -hmm. to plan ahead was a good thing now, that went out of fashion. In international somewhere. affairs as well as domestic uh, affairs. I mean, they had, absolutely, they had a big picture. Yeah, they had a big picture and, and looked ahead and had levers, some of them flawed, but levers to help them deliver on their planning. 73 came and went. We know the chaos for the next six years. And in a way, the quadrupling of oil prices cleared the way for Margaret Thatcher, who had North Sea oil to help her along. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah... These turning points come and go uh, without enough reflection. And sometimes the turning points come and the exact opposite happens to what the drivers of the turning point were hoping. You know, Iraq being a classic example. Tony Blair seeing this as a kind of forms of liberal interventionism. And as a result of Iraq, there is, are no liberal yep. interventions anywhere. Um, that's not the main reason he went in. I think he went in because he felt he had to have this alliance with America. 
And I think you agree mm-hmm, yep. that was fairly fundamental. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. You don't mention um, constitutional change as a turning point in the UK. And I think for a Scottish audience, that might be an interesting omission. It's touched on in the chapter on the 97 government. Uh, yeah. yeah, the 97 government. But yeah. I mean, at that time, you had not, not just Scottish devolution, which was probably the, the biggest shake-up of UK governance for a century. Yeah. But you also had... Northern Ireland Assembly, yeah. which we were talking about in here earlier with Monica McWilliams. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and ultimately, eventually, well, a, a more powerful Welsh, well, it, Welsh it, body. It, it, it justifies the inclusion of a chapter on 1997. Mm-hmm. The constitutional changes clearly were profound, um, as was the Northern Ireland peace process. Mm. Um, epic, an epic achievement on the part of many, as you witnessed earlier this afternoon. Um, and yeah, no, I think I think that you know you, you couldn't say the '97 Labour government was a turning point on issues such as ownership, as '45 yep. was with state ownership. Yep. Thatcher was with privatisation. I mean, uh, New Labour basically stuck with the Thatcher settlement on that, and early on on public spending too, it stuck with the Tory settlement. Mm-hmm. On constitutional change, it was radical, and 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 that's why it's in the book as a as a turning point, but as we were discussing earlier, and I think you agree, I haven't put Scotland in as a separate chapter because we don't know quite what the turn is going to be. Mm -hmm. Whether we're about to enter a period in which the um, potency of independence declines or not. So, you know, you've got to be clear about what form the turning point took to include it. And I couldn't do it with, uh, I couldn't do a separate thing on Scotland. But I do agree that the constitutional changes, um, although again, had intentions that weren't wholly uh, the ones that were expected, um, were arguably the biggest, it wasn't the only big change from 97. Some of their you know, things like Shore Start and things, there were some big, big changes. The investment in the NHS. Um, But it didn't, I think, challenge ideas and orthodoxies, Mm -hmm. as 45 did and 79. This is an international book festival and it's it's concept. Um, And I'm wondering about how you feel these turning points in the UK uh, compare with other similar nations. Uh, you know, and there are, there are nations not far from France went through decolonisation, went through some of the some of the sort of strife and tensions that that you've described as well. Um, obviously, America, yeah. some similarities to what happens in the UK over yeah. the years. But elsewhere, you've written recently about the rise of populist leaders yeah. and identity politics and so on. How do you feel? Scotland and the UK I, compare with other places I, in the context of what you're describing here in the book. Unique and in some ways uh, uniquely depressing, you know. Um, so on, on, on foreign affairs, there is this curious mix uh, of British exceptionalism um, and insecurity, which I don't think... I mean, you get other issues... We have that here in Scotland as well. Uh, well, well yep. yeah, the, with yep. the UK... You know, this could be applied yep. in, in, in any context within the UK. Um, now, obviously, you don't get that with the United States because they are exceptional. So you don't have this sort of insecurity. Uh, but uh, you see it with Brexit. You saw it with Suez. You saw it with Iraq. With every respect to, mm. to Blair, um, he was trying to be shoulder to shoulder with the United States. Well, of course, we're not shoulder to shoulder with the United States. Um, so it was both exceptionalism and insecurity. He was too scared to break with the United States. Um, and uh, and I think that is unique. And in terms of the domestic context, well, certainly the 1970s and that wild period, uh, quite a lot of other European countries in America were having nothing like the instability following the quadrupling of oil. So I think these are distinct. I mean, there obviously are common global challenges. Climate change is, is a continuing turning point, but that is not a turning point then. Mm-hmm. This is continuous. Um, but no, I think these are distinct and unique, and I think there are lessons from these turning points and the failure sometimes to turn. Um, and uh, I think it's a kind of British problem. A West, a kind of, yeah, yeah. Well, you're going to have to wait till September before the book is available to read the 10 turning points, but you have a chance today to ask about 
any of them or anything else, uh, given Steve's incredible breadth of knowledge about British history and politics. Uh, so, uh, so fire away. Let's see who... I'm going to go to somebody. I saw you've, you've been asking questions a couple of times already, so I'm going to start down here and then go back to you. So, first one down here, thanks. Do you want to ask a question? Hi. Um, I, I, I wondered why you didn't talk about the Falklands War at all, because to me, Thatcher was incredibly unpopular in 1983, and I can remember being out canvassing for the Labour Party and getting insults hurled at me all around the council. I was going to say, that was very brave, <laughs> 1983. And my husband said to me, where are all these people who are supporting the Falklands War? And I said, I can tell you where they are. They're living in the council estates. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting, the Falklands War. It obviously features in the chapter on uh, 79 and is referred to more widely on foreign policy because... Uh, it was a very revealing moment uh, because here was a sense of a country uh, in decline that got the most huge jingoistic buzz out of taking back this tiny little island that it had inadvertently given away because of defence cuts, which the Argentinian junta, as it was called, uh, saw as a sign that they could get the Falklands back. And... Uh, it, it did turn Thatcher into an almost sort of like Dame Edna Everidge figure. It turned her grand. She started referring to herself as, uh, no, no, she started referring to Churchill, who she didn't know, as Winston. As sort of the, the, all prime ministers try and seek comparisons with Churchill. And she said, uh, Winston and I would, but, you know, so she'd never met Winston. You know, it was all, this was all uh, uh, Falklands. But I, I, I think it's part of a pattern of a country that was in decline getting a rather sort of humiliating jingoistic buzz out of a relatively minor uh, uh, conquest, so to speak, or not conquest, regain, reacquisition. In terms of its electoral impact, I think it, it did have minor consequences. I think she still would have won in 83, because again, with every respect to David Steele, um, I think the, uh, the alliance and Labour... The, the schism, you know, with the gang of four joining David, uh, would have made Labour lose anyway. So you might not have got the abuse that you got, but I think you would have still lost in 83. And she, I think she still would have won. So I don't think it was as big a turning point in that sense. But it was symptomatic of a country, again, still unsure of itself on the international stage. You know, she, she had this relationship with President Reagan, which was massively significant, I think, in Tony mm -hmm. Blair's thinking, because he saw her uh, hugely uh, elevated as a global figure because of her friendship with Reagan. And he saw Neil Kinnock go over to see Reagan before one of the general elections. And Reagan saw him for 10 minutes and just yep. told him to go away. And I think people like Blair were sitting there saying, right, if we ever get the chance we're going to have that kind of relationship with American presidents, whoever they are. And on it went. Mm. Interesting. Friend at the back. Thank you. Uh, I'd just like to hear your opinion on <clears throat> the, um, the past 10 years and the development of, of communications and social media. Um, I think that's had a huge impact on certainly the way that we all live. It's brought us Trump, it's brought us all the rest of this. And my opinion is it's one of the major turning points of the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, but I, I don't think it's been a turning point. I, in the book, when you all buy it, um, I define what a turning point is. I think the social media, you are right, it's been massively influential, but I think it's a development of a trend that was already in place. In other words, uh, the media's impact on politics and vice versa was already huge before social media. But where you are right is it has speeded everything up to the point of near madness. Um, so in the 1970s, I don't know if uh, one of those 70s leaders had made a bad speech. They, they wouldn't know about it till the next day when they got a bad review in the Times newspaper or something like that. Now, during the speech, some of them look on Twitter and they, you know, Cameron once said, uh, I was making a speech didn't think it was going very well. There was a pause and I sort of looked on Twitter 
and I saw somebody say this speech is rubbish and it completely threw me. And that was during the speech. Um, and it, it has absolutely speeded things up. And at uh, Edinburgh, we did a, I did a, one of the themes was politics and the media. And Will Hutton, the journalist was, and economist, was in the audience. And he said he thought uh, AI was going to play a big part in the next general election and in the next presidential election in America. And the level of distortion will be bonkers and dangerous. Now, I'm not, I don't know about that, but I think already it's speeded things up. And it's damaging us all. In, in, in the madness of the festival, I lost my phone. And I, I might as well have been completely naked wandering around. I, I hated it. I'd had to get the, you know, Twitter and all this stuff. Um, so you're right, it's changed things. But I think the power of the media has always been there and distort and has been a distorting factor, actually. Um, not least in the 80s and the 70s. Anyway, yeah, but thank you. Okay. David Steele has been mentioned, so I'm going to give him a chance to ask a question and then I'll go up to a group of people up here. Just coming. David Steele was about to say Just everything here. I've said about him was completely wrong. You know, it's, it's the danger when no, no, people my, are in the audience. My question is this. Jack McConnell ran quite a successful coalition government in Scotland. Yeah. And which, among other things, brought us the Border Railway Line, which we're very grateful for. Um, Starmer has obviously got to fight to win a majority. That's his job. What if he doesn't? What do you think should happen? Well, I think what will happen um, is he'll form a minority Labour government, um, as uh, Wilson did after 74, uh, and a period I know you were actively involved with, uh, especially with Callaghan and the Lib Lab Pact, when you had a very close relationship with Jim Callaghan. And I think you hoped that if he had called that earlier election and there'd been a hung parliament, the two of you would have formed a government. Um, but I think uh, what he'll do is uh, try and uh, lead a minority Labour government. And that involves a lot of stamina, I mean, you, you managed the coalition very skillfully. Managing a minority government. Yeah, um, oh, God. <laughs> Every prime minister who's attempted it ages about 50 years um, in about six months. You know, Harold Wilson, February 74. He looked pretty old when he became prime minister. He retired two years later. He looked about 95. Mm. Um, well, you know the pressure it put on Jim Callaghan and then the formation of the Lib Lab Pact. And then, if you think, Theresa May in mm -hmm. 2017... Uh, she went crazy trying to win votes in a hung parliament. Um, so it is a really big challenge. Um, I don't, what do you think is easier, leading a minority administration or having a formal coalition where you know if you can get the other parties to cooperate, you can... I think you get more done in a coalition. Right. It's much more exciting as a minority administration. Um, <laughs> for, for good reasons than bad. So I think... A coalition can appear to be very boring, um, and I think that perhaps was the case occasionally, and if I can call it my coalition in, in, in Scotland. But we got a lot done, more done than any other administrations before or since uh, yeah. in Scotland. So, so if Starmer... I, I, it's not as interesting and exciting, but it is productive. So if Starmer asked you, with your experience, Lord McConnell, uh, should I form a minority government or try and do a coalition with the Lib Dems? I think it would be the Lib Dems, not the SNP, obviously. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's been ruled yeah. out. Uh, what would your advice be to him? I think it probably depends how close he is. If he felt he could run a, another election within Quite a soon. year yeah. and, get, and, and was close enough to perhaps win the second one, then set out a budget, I don't think the Liberal Democrats and the SNP would vote down the first Labour budget. No. So he would almost certainly get that through the house, and then he could he could run that for a year and then run another election. Yeah, I think well, he, I think he's going to have so much good. People are going to be so relieved <laughs> that I think he'll have so much goodwill on his side that yeah, that he he will have more freedom than I would ever have had yeah. when I was kind of managing a period of transition yeah. and. Wilson uh, formed a minority government in February '74 and held an election in October 74. Yep. And he had been Prime Minister for six years before. Yeah. So he wasn't a new politician. No. He, wasn't, he didn't have forward momentum. He, no. had sort of, he was put in to rescue the country from the mess that was happening in 73, 74, yeah. but he wasn't fresh and new with new momentum, whereas yeah. 
even with you know not the most exciting personality in the world, Kia will have momentum if he's actually won the election. Yeah. So it's an, it'll be an interesting scenario. Everywhere. Somebody at the back's got a microphone. Um, various points today we've had people tell us how our brains on an international scale have normalised violence and terrorism and all sorts of things that we didn't think we could accept. Do you think that domestically we've now normalised a level of bad behaviour, disrespect for the constitution and so on, to a point where we're not going to have a calibre of politician that can execute what we ask them to do at the next election? Yeah, it's, great question. it's a brilliant question. And my provisional answer, but it's only a provisional answer, is um, no, I don't think it has been normalised. Um, you see, I take uh, some comfort uh, in what has happened to uh, Johnson, um, because there he was, a winner of a near landslide. Oh, has the sound gone off? Uh, uh, you, is that a mic? Yeah. Works. So there he was. Thank you very much. Uh, there he was in December 2019, mm. the apparent triumphant yep. winner of a near landslide election. And he's got, I mean, you know, they got, he's out of uh, number 10. He's out of the House of Commons. Um, he still can't quite believe it. You know, I mean, he thinks he's Churchill and ready to save us all again. Um, but he isn't. And because he uh, lied, uh, the lies in the end got him, and relatively quickly. And you see, in America, where there is justified alarm about what's going on in America, uh, it, it is worth remembering that Trump didn't win. I mean, I think one of the reasons why he went even more crazy than he was in the first place uh, during that period, you know, the January the 6th uh, attempt to bring down the Constitution, um, was the humiliation. He, you know, mm -hmm. he was a one-term president and he couldn't bear it. So I don't think it has been quite normalised. I would have said it had been if Trump won that second term um, or he behaved in the way he did and was getting away with it now instead of having about 25 court appearances. Um, and here, I would say it's been normalised if Johnson was still Prime Minister mm -hmm. and we'd be in deep trouble because it would show the lying worked. But it is a provisional answer because Johnson could be back, Trump could be President of the United States, giving press conferences in a prison cell in Georgia or whatever <laughs> surreal scene we are in by then. And then, of course, it would have been normalised. The most unbelievable things would have been normalised. But I think at the moment, those who are real um, uh, law-breaking liars have had to face the consequences. Mm -hmm. But what, do you, I so far, so far. I do to some extent, although I do worry about uh, what I would describe generally from all left-right um, identity politicians to class politicians, I do worry about celebrity politics. And I, I think we do see an increase in that in the, in the age of um, more media, uh, more regular media, more, uh, more colourful media than, 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 we, than we used to have. Yeah. Um, I mean, Berlusconi would be the, one of the best examples of that. Yeah. Berlusconi was yeah. probably the most similar European leader to Johnson. To, to, to Trump. Uh, or to Trump or Johnson that we've had in the last... Or Johnson, yeah. Uh, in, yeah. In, in the last 30 years. And he got re-elected more often than any Italian Prime Minister. Yeah. Um, yeah. Since the Second World War. I mean, that's... it's it's uh, And people weren't concerned what he was doing. They were, they were... They identified with him as a leader. So I still worry a bit about celebrity leaders. Yeah. Um, but yeah. uh, but I, generally, I agree with you that I think the demise of Johnson proves that we're not bust yet. Somebody here. Yes. Yep. Let's see if we've got a microphone. Sorry, I'm going to the wrong end of the room for the microphone here. Sorry. Sorry. Hi. Um, what needs to happen in politics so good female politicians can stay in it? Well, um, let me think through that one. You see, when you say uh, good female politicians stay in it, could I just ask you a question? What Do you have individuals in mind who you think are going to 
leave, when you say stay in it, people who are, you feel being forced out? Well, I think of, you know, women who have stepped down from politics relatively recently because they've cited, you know, toxic environments. I'm talking particularly at Westminster, people who, women who basically think that it's not, it's not for them because they can't continue in an environment that doesn't align with their values, that doesn't align with what they want to, what the change that they want to enact in the world or locally, domestically or internationally. Yeah. Well, any toxic environment um, uh, uh, needs to be addressed. And certainly Westminster, I don't know what the Edinburgh environment's like, is pretty uh, macho and unpleasant for a lot of people. Um, but in terms of uh, female politicians, I think I'm right in saying um, there are currently more women MPs than male MPs in the Labour Party. And the number of women MPs in the Tory party, which used to be Margaret Thatcher and no one else, is um, now uh, growing at every election. Uh, and I think the majority, if, if Starmer forms a cabinet, the majority of cabinet ministers will be women. Now, I know they haven't had a female leader yet, but the majority of cabinet ministers will be women. The truth is, to be honest, I know you, you've probably got particular women in mind who've left because of the toxic culture. Um, the toxic culture can uh, uh, ruin a lot of people, um, and uh, male and female. But I think in terms of uh, the number of women who want to be MPs at Westminster uh, is uh, higher than ever. So my answer to the question is, uh, the toxic environment is unforgivable, um, but the number of women wanting to be MPs and becoming them, I think you'll find will be higher than ever at the next British general election. And is that similar in the Scottish Parliament? I'm not quite sure of the ratio, but... To some extent, I think the... Um... I think this is this is a wider problem than politics, and it's just perhaps more visible and more um, impactful, perhaps, uh, in, in the in the in the political arena. And the problem is uh, the the tendency of um, important, powerful organisations, whether they're in the private sector or the public sector, or in parliament and political parties, um, to to go tribal and defend their own um, whenever anything threatens their reputation or their image. And I think the reputation management of uh, public and private organisations and political parties um, has, has been to the detriment of dealing with, with these kind of issues. And changing that is a huge task. I mean, we've seen it recently in, 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 in different, you know, both in the private sector and the public sector, uh, um, it, on a small scale as well as on a, on a, on a, on a, on a large scale. Uh, and I think the tendency inside political parties to silence things, not cause any trouble, um, get people to hush-hush and let it go uh, is, uh, is a real problem. I had a couple of instances when I was First Minister that have never been made public, um, but I dealt with them. Um, and I knew, in, in my instincts, exactly what to do within an hour of, uh, of, of them happening. Um, uh, in fact, I... I actually, I was talking to Bridget, my wife, about this yesterday in the car um, when I was a council leader in 1990. Um, I put a very close friend in jail because I found out that he was he was corrupt in the council. I called the police immediately. I didn't think a minute. No, it wasn't, um, wasn't announced in my body, thought, that I should I should in any way cover that up or, or ask him what had happened. But the police should ask him what had happened. Um, and, I, and, and I think the instincts of far too many leaders have been over the years to... Uh, to get somebody to deal with it quietly, um, and, uh, and 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 if, actually, if you deal with things, people can change their behaviour. I hauled in a senior figure in the party um, when I was told by members, female members of his staff, um, that I shouldn't give him an appointment because of something that had happened in the. It wasn't a particularly hugely serious thing that happened, but it made them feel uncomfortable. And I'll tell you, I never did it again. Um, <laughs> I told him if he did, I would make it public. About and, five minutes ago, we had the five-minute warning sign, so we've gone a bit off the book. So yep. Can I say something about the book? Sorry. Now, you've got... 
I was going to come back to the book. You have got here. That was a turning dream, point for him, by the way. The dream, dream <laughs> scenario. So the publishers um, uh, couldn't get the book up here. It's it, it, be physically available, but it isn't physically available today. So what they've done is uh, they've sent up a load of stickers, uh, which I can sign with your name or names of people who you might buy it for. Now, this is the dream scenario for you, because you can tell me to sign the thing, and you won't have to hand any money over. And then if you decide you don't want to buy it, you've got a sticker. And if you do want to buy it, you've got a signed thing. Um, so I'll be signing those. And also, as a sign of how febrile politics is, um, I'd written my previous uh, book, which is now out in paperback, uh, Prime Ministers We Never Had, uh, from Rab Butler to Jeremy Corbyn. Um, when Trust became Prime Minister and Sunak lost that contest, the day uh, the publisher phoned me up and said, Steve, I've got a brilliant idea. Why don't you do a new chapter on Rishi Sunak? Uh, and we'll put it out in November. Now, just imagine if we had done that. The Prime Ministers we never had, from Rab Butler to Rishi Sunak, the day he moves into number 10 as Prime Minister. But those books are available, and if you've got uh, friends you love or hate, because they might not like it, I can sign those books. But I can sign the stickers for the other ones, and then you don't have, you know, you can decide what you want to do with it at a later date, whether you want it for you or friends or whatever. Anyway, that would be in the uh, bookshop. Promise we never had. From Brad Butler to Rishi Sunak. No, no. Uh, and there are two other books of thieves in the in the bookshop. Stickers well. for the ten turning points, which is which is going to be out in about two weeks' time. And uh, next year, you're going to do the Edinburgh Festival again next year. Oh yeah, be either so next the year. Edge of an yeah, if you read the book. You can go and discuss it with them next year at the oh, Edinburgh yeah, Festival. Yeah. No, and uh, if you agree with the ten turning points, or you don't. Yeah, uh, you'll get a chance to uh, to talk to them about that face to face. If I sign the sticker now and you turn up without the book, I know you haven't bought it. <laughs> um, anyway, anyway, fab, interesting, fascinating, thought provoking as ever. Steve Whitkins, thank you very much. <laughs>